Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. From the St. Louis Public Radio Newsroom, this is The Gateway. It's Friday, December 2nd. I'm Jonathan All, in for Wayne Pratt. Little-known court orders in St. Louis banish some people, frequently those who are homeless or mentally ill, from some parts of the city. They lose an area where they can receive services, where they have friends, where they can go and congregate and, you know, feel safer. And, you know, they're, they're forced to move to another neighborhood. That story's coming up on The Gateway. St. Louis is getting $280 million from the more than $500 million settlement over the departure of the Rams football team. But St. Louis Public Radio's Eric Schmidt reports city leaders are in no rush to spend it. The only immediate allocation will be $30 million to the downtown convention center, according to the mayor's office. That allocation is part of the settlement. Anything else likely won't happen until after aldermanic elections next April. Jared Boyd is the chief of staff of Mayor Tashara Jones. He says the Rams settlement has few restrictions on how it can be spent, unlike the $500 million the city got from the American Rescue Plan Act. Our priority right now is to help allocate those ARPA funds that do have deadlines that are more restrictive than the Rams settlement. Boyd says the city plans to invest the settlement from the Rams while seeking community feedback on how the money should be spent. I'm Eric Schmid, St. Louis Public Radio. The city of St. Louis has not made sure it has enough money to adequately maintain its water system. State Auditor Nicole Galloway released her review of the city's Department of Public Utilities yesterday. It's part of an audit that citizens demanded in 2018. Galloway's staff found that the city's failure to implement needed rate increases has delayed maintenance on the system, making work more expensive. The lack of maintenance also means the city is at risk of violating the terms of bonds it had previously issued. The review also found issues with payroll and billing procedures. In its response to the audit, the department says it agrees it needs more money and will work to formally request smaller but more frequent rate increases. Water rates were last raised in 2011. On the final day of the veto session yesterday, Illinois lawmakers passed changes to a controversial criminal justice reform bill that, among other things, eliminates cash bail on January 1st. Alex Stegman reports. One change to the so-called Safety Act clarifies that people being held on bail before the law kicks in can either stay on bail or petition to move to the new system. Those accused of low-level crimes get a hearing in seven days. Those considered flight risks or a public threat get a hearing in two to three months. The measure also says police cannot immediately detain a person for certain burglaries, but it outlines other instances like non-probationable felonies or hate crimes where they can. It says prosecutors have to use specific facts to show a person is dangerous enough for detention. It clarifies when police can arrest trespassers, and judges can issue arrest warrants for people who miss court dates. I'm Alex Dagman. Rural America is continuing to get older. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's annual Rural America at a Glance report shows that more than 20% of rural residents are over 65, compared to 16% in urban areas. Mary Hendrickson is a professor of rural sociology at the University of Missouri. She says there's no silver bullet to reverse the trend. There's federal issues, there's state issues, there's um, community issues, there's regional issues. Can we start thinking about this as 
you know, regional um, networks and so on. There is not just one thing. Hendrickson says rural areas need to make things better for families, and that can include everything from better broadband access to establishing reliable daycare and preschool options. Graduate members of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority want to help revitalize North St. Louis with a museum in the Jeff Vanderloo neighborhood. The Gamma Omega chapter of the Black sorority plans to celebrate the achievements of black women. St. Louis Public Radio's Andrea Henderson reports. The nation's first African-American sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, is recognizing one of its founders, Ethel Hedgeman Lau, by converting her St. Louis Avenue home into a museum. The local chapter's nonprofit also plans a $2 million community center next to the museum. Construction will begin this spring. Alderman Brandon Bosley represents the Jeff Vanderloo neighborhood. He says the new developments could be a safe space for children. It's amazing to finally see things happen and also see black individuals be able to own something great in an area where they've been begging for improvement. Bosley hopes the area becomes a hub for black children to learn and play. I'm Andrea Henderson, St. Louis Public Radio. Hi, it's Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson, your afternoon newscaster at St. Louis Public Radio. Keep podcasts like The Gateway thriving by becoming a member of St. Louis Public Radio today. Your support ensures that your community stays informed and has access to fact-based local and national news. Give right now at stlpr.org and thanks. In St. Louis, a little-known city ordinance permits judges to banish people from stepping foot in parts of the city as punishment for petty crimes. Some civil liberties advocates object to what are known as neighborhood orders of protection, arguing that they keep vulnerable people away from valuable services they need, including shelter and food. ProPublica investigative reporter Jeremy Kohler discovered the legal practice of issuing these orders in the city's municipal court system. Essentially, if someone is charged with a minor infraction uh, in the city's municipal court, um, it's a violation of a city ordinance. If they rack up a couple of those in the same area, the neighborhood where this happened might go to the court and say, hey, this person has been a problem and we would like some relief and we'd like to have this person banned for a period. And the prosecutor will often use this as a part of the plea agreement that the defendant would agree to and ultimately would ultimately sign to agree to stay out of the neighborhood where they had allegedly committed infractions. How, how did you find these? How did you stumble upon them? Well, earlier this year, I uh, published stories about how the city neighborhoods hire private police to supplement the city police department. The private police are actually off-duty St. Louis police officers who work for private security companies, private policing companies. And one thing that kept coming up is neighborhood orders of protection, NOP. Um, can we get an NOP on this person? Can Had get, you ever heard of them before? No, and and I it, it just sounds so interesting, like a neighborhood order of protection. What is that? Uh, it had been virtually uncovered. Uh, no, no one in St. Louis media had really written about it for for years, and yet it was something that the police were talking about and doing on a daily basis at a level that the public really doesn't pay attention to. You know, pe- people don't go to municipal court and watch the proceedings there. They don't really care about these minor infractions. And really, a lot of the lawyers in town that I talked to didn't know about it either, because a lot of these people are appearing in court without lawyers in municipal court. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, it's just sort of something that was flew bl- below the radar for, for years and years. Well, in your reporting, you tell the stories of people who are unable to access some really basic services because of these protections, um, and they've certainly certainly uh, generated a lot of objections. Is that what you, that's what you found? Yeah. A lot of the people who had neighborhood orders of protection against them are people who are homeless or people who have uh, mental illness or people who have drug dependencies and um, don't have the capacity to make good decisions for themselves. And once they agree to be banned from a neighborhood, the best case scenario is they're going to go to a different neighborhood. The worst case scenario is they're going to stay in the same neighborhood and just continue to get violations, which, which happened all the time. In some cases, a policy like this just actually makes things worse for a person who is suffering from mental illness, who, who feels like they have no hope, is not making good decisions. They lose an area where they can receive services, where they have friends, where they can go and congregate and, you know, feel safer. And, you know, they're, they're forced to move to another neighborhood. And I think, um, at least in the case of uh, one of the gentlemen that I wrote about, um, his family member said, his mother said, um, that this really had an effect on him. He did not have access to downtown because, because of the ban. And downtown was where he was receiving a lot of his services. In general, who is it that wants these orders of protections to continue to exist? In general, it's business districts, people in some of the uh, wealthier areas, business owners downtown, um, where a lot of people tend to congregate. And these people are branded as nuisances, and there's a desire on the part of the businesses and the residents to have them go somewhere else. The city's municipal court system had paused using these during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Correct. Yeah, the court stopped because there was no more in-person court. The process requires that the defendant appear in court so that they sign the agreement, which would usually happen because a police officer would issue you a summons to go to court. And because the courts have been closed, the police officers have not been issuing summonses. But these are still, they're still having an effect, and do you think they're going to come back? That's, I think, an important question. The city is sort of at a decision point now. Does it want to keep going with this? Now that there's been a story, you know, in ProPublica casting a light on this, the city could turn the other way. The city could decide not to do this anymore. But right now, there is an active ordinance that allows neighborhoods and the courts to do this, and the police are actually under orders to collect evidence to obtain neighborhood orders of protection in cases. And there was no indication from the court that they intended to stop. I asked the court, and they said that they were evaluating what they were going to do when they reopened to in-person court proceedings. ProPublica reporter Jeremy Kohler, thanks for this story on neighborhood orders of protection in the city of St. Louis. Thanks for having me. You can read Jeremy's full story at stlpr.org. Our Mark Degon edited and produced that conversation. The Gateway is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, music by Ryan McNeely of Adult Fur. We're a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. I'm Jonathan All, in for Wayne Pratt, and from the St. Louis Public Radio newsroom, this has been The Gateway. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.